present New York City's avant-garde ensemble, Bang on a Can All-Stars, part rock band, part amplified chamber group, performing works by Brian Eno, and from Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore. And on February 15th at 8 p.m., the Chan Center and Kickstart Disability Arts and Culture present Weights, a live performance with Lynn Manning, a riveting one-man play told by actor-storyteller Lynn Manning about how his life changed forever when a bullet shot in a crowded Los Angeles bar robbed him of his sight. The show opens with BC singer-songwriter and recent Canadian Aboriginal Music Award winner Krista Couture. Tickets at Ticketmaster, student ticket pricing available for both shows. For more information, visit chancenter.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Fuller here and joining you for another edition of the Arts Report. It's been a beautiful day here in Vancouver. Uh, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, there's no rain. It's exactly the kind of day that I like to be here and outside rather than inside. But, uh, but yeah, a wonderful day here in Vancouver. It is February 11th, a Wednesday. And I've got a jam-packed show for you today. Uh, we're heading on into reading week at the end of this week. So next week will be a uh, pre-taped show because I am heading out to Ontario tomorrow morning, bright and early, 7 a.m., to um, head to a concert, um, concert, I wish, to a conference and to a bunch of CRTC hearings, which has to do with my thesis in journalism right here at the great, wonderful school, UBC. But that's my life, and it's not an artsy life, unfortunately. Therefore, I must get to the content of today's show, which, as I said previously, is packed. So first up, this Sunday, February 15th, at 8 p.m., actor, American actor and storyteller Lynn Manning will be presenting his autobiographical solo play, Waits, at the TELUS Studio Theatre. That's at the Chan Centre. And here's a little tidbit of what Waits sounds like life as I'd known it, and I was feeling too good to notice. Pessimist that I am, I should have recognized that October 25th, 1978, was tilted way too far into the positive not to go tumbling headlong into the negative. It was a smog-free, picture postcard day in Los Angeles, and in terms of my pseudo-Eastern existential hedonistic philosophy of life, the universal oneness of all things. Is fully evident this day. Since its world premiere in 2000, Lynn has performed Waits in national and international venues, large and small. The production won three NAACP Theatre Awards, including Best Actor for Lynn. And since then, Lynn has performed Waits off-Broadway in Washington, D.C., at the National Black Theatre Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and at the International Blind and Visually Impaired Theatre in uh, Zagreb, Croatia, and at the Oval House Theatre in London and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I actually had a chance to speak with Lynn Manning last week about his forthcoming show in Vancouver. Here's our conversation. Lynn, can you tell me a little bit about what the process of writing Waits was? It was first staged in the year 2000, and that was almost 25 years after you were blinded in a Hollywood bar. 
Right. Can you talk about how you got to the point where you were able to bring this story to the stage? It's a bit of a con convoluted process, actually. Mm -hmm. um, uh, initially, I, uh, I yeah, set out, uh, after losing my sight, to, uh, to sort of write my autobiography, mm -hmm. uh, prose, just uh, a book. Right. And uh, so I spent some years working at that and uh, writing poetry and the like, but I was not a playwright and I wasn't um, a performer, mm -hmm. uh, per se. I, uh, after getting some poetry published and the like, I got involved with uh, uh, doing poetry readings for uh, the, you know, the publications and, and uh, sort of fell in love with the audience performer dynamic. Right. So I pursued um, acting classes in the late 80s. Um, at the same time, I was trying to market the autobiography and hearing uh, the uh, uh, publishers that my agent took the work to all said they thought the story was compelling and all of that, but since I was a nobody, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> they weren't interested. So, uh, so they said maybe if he fictionalized it, they'd be interested. But I put I put the autobiography aside, and um, um, and as I um, pursued you know acting classes and like I I started writing plays. That's the late mm -hmm. '80s. I wrote my first play in um, 1990, 91, right. titled Shoot. It was a multiple character play, and it was. You know, very successful. So I, uh, I dove into playwriting uh, from that point, and I didn't do or consider a solo writing a solo piece until um, you know, in late in the nineties, uh, um, as um, as I, you know, came became uh, familiar with other solo artists, solo stage performers and uh, work, like Anna DeVere Smith and, uh, and Charlene Woodard. I, uh, I, I started to think about uh, telling my story on stage. Right. And, uh, and, and telling it in the same way that I had intended to tell it in the autobiography uh, with, uh, with uh, poet poems at the signpost between the stories or between the chapters. And um, so I began to experiment with that in the late, late uh, 90s. And I was asked by um, uh, Vic, Vic, Vicki Ann Lewis of uh, the Mark Taper Forum's Other Voices project to, uh, to um, try to uh, come up with I was asked if I had a, a, a solo piece that I might want to present 15 minutes of hmm. at a, uh, a, a, a stage reading of works by writers with disabilities. So I said, um, uh, sure, I got this thing I'm working on. Right. And I, I, I did the 15, and uh, people got excited. <laughs> I'm and, sure. And uh, so it did just... Uh, it began to to build from there, you know, and I, I built it piece by piece, like from 15 to 30 minutes, and then the 30 minutes got um, 
the artistic uh, directors and like over at the Mark Taper Forum excited and um, Bob Egan the director got engaged with me on it he wanted to to direct it and uh, so um, we got into a rehearsal room uh, with another actor I, I decided you know as I created this piece uh, to be the writer, the faster way to write is to just write, not to try to act it. At the same time, yeah. Yeah, so um, my friend and dramaturg from the beginning of my my writing career, uh, Irene Oppenheim, uh, brought in the autobiography Mm -hmm. uh, chapters that I had and sort of went through some of that and called through that for the, the pieces of the story to tell. That would move uh, move uh, the Waits uh, story forward, and um, and so with this actor reading what I wrote, and the director and I uh, discussing things, and you know when we come to a point, I you know tell a story that wasn't written. Say okay, what's uh, what about you know how do we move from this point to that point? And I, I'd say, well, here's a story. And you know, I'd write that down, bring it back, and uh, and over the process of a couple of weeks, um, it came, it grew from the 90-minute piece to about a two-hour piece, and wow. then I mean, from the 30-minute piece to about a two-hour piece, and then it was like critical to cut it back. So, right. so um, then it became you know the the, the great tooth-pulling. Uh, project mm-hmm. and uh, and it ended up um, it ended up uh, the original version being uh, close to 90 minutes long without an intermission right and is that how long it is about now that's not what I'm performing in uh, Vancouver at the Chan Center no mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, 70 minutes okay yeah 70 minutes 70 minutes I hit the ground running and mm-hmm. And uh, don't land. I, I'm sure the story just take completely takes off. I mean, uh, what's what's it like to to sort of relive that story over and over again in front of audiences? It's uh, well, it's emotionally, uh, it's an emotional workout. Yeah. And a physical workout. Emotionally, because uh, I, you know, the if I don't um, take myself back to those places and times that I that I'm acting out, I I I don't feel uh, you know authentic. I don't. Mm-hmm. Th- I, I I I dread that the audience won't come with me. Right. You know, if I don't, if I'm not willing to take the trip, I don't think they'll be willing to go. Mm-hmm. on their own so so I have to lead the way mm-hmm. uh, it's it's uh, it's cathartic uh, at the end you know but I, when I get to the end it's uh, it's, it's like you know it's a great uh, a great uh, release and and you know somewhat of a celebration mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, how does uh, the audience usually respond I mean the nature of your story is so Heartbreaking, but also so rewarding and so uh, in yeah, enlightening. Uh, um, most people are, um, you know, um, 
uh, really are um, moved by it. I, I, you know, I hesitate to say changed by it, but, uh, but uh, the um, the response is uh, it's just pretty overwhelming, um, and it's 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 always interesting because of you know cultural differences as a you know coming from south central los angeles and uh these united states and you know uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s and stuff it's just like you know um i i wonder about audiences say in you know in midwest america or or in canada and toronto and vancouver and and even in um in the uk and croatia where I've also uh, done it, and it's uh, and it's the response is the same everywhere. Really, have you done it? Performed it before a blind audience? Uh, yes, yes. I uh, whenever I I get the possible the, the chance to do that, I do. Um, my wife actually is um, works with the Junior Blind of America, and when I first developed the the piece, uh, I was. Uh, teaching as a volunteer instructor at the Braille Institute mm -hmm. of America and uh, and I've done performances for both organizations as as frequently as I can you know possibly make that happen right. and that's it's been uh, um, that's one I guess I'd have to say it's that's certainly one of my most enthusiastic audiences mm -hmm. uh, but but it goes beyond just uh, the you know, blind being able to relate to the piece. It's also a piece that that uh, people with disabilities relate to in a in a really profound way as well. Um, Can you explain that a bit? Well, there's some universal realities that we face as uh, people with disabilities. You know, um, accessibility to to uh, travel and uh, people's uh, lowered expectations for for us, and you know people's uh, uh, religious fixations upon us, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And I get into some of that in weights, and um, and I uh, get very hearty responses from uh, from um, disabled audience members. Mm -hmm. And and actually, it's it's um, it's um, the piece has has been you know uh, fairly written about and uh, delved into by uh, Society for Disability Studies uh, sure. here in the states and Canada actually. Mm, I'm sure the re the resonance the resonance of the piece must be different for both able uh, like people who are not blind or uh, every different audience regardless right. of their nationality or ability gender etc um yeah what so true. what are the what are the weights what the title uh, well <laughs> it's uh it's a metaphor for um for the vicissitudes of life you know uh mm. the the uh vicissitudes of life but um you know, weights to either be carried along or tossed aside along life's path, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, blindness is just another such weight, you know? Fair enough. 
Is there something specific that you hope that audience will take away with them? Something that they can carry a weight from the, not necessarily a heavy weight, but perhaps mm. um, a token that comes with, not token, but something? Well, well, there, you know, I uh, there are you know several uh, misconceptions that that I hope people come away uh, free of, mm -hmm. and that's that uh, being blind is the most terrible thing that can happen to you. Mm -hmm. um, that I hope they come away, uh, you know, freed from that uh, that uh, misconception. Misconception, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, and I, that's for for you know blind, newly blinded, uh, or you know friends, family, uh, relatives of blind, anybody that comes in contact with people who are blind, mm -hmm. and um, and also uh, anyone that that faces uh, you know some some tragic and sudden you know change in their life, whether it be a disability or some other. Uh, circumstances. I hope folks come away uh, uh, recognizing that uh, you know we may not be able to control um, you know where we're born or who we're born to or you know certain instances that occur in our lives, but we certainly have control over how we deal with it. Definitely. You know, um, so yeah. we can choose to you know be victims or, or, you know, or we can choose to, you know, move forward in, in, in the world. Absolutely. Uh, um, easy I, to say, hard to do, but, <laughs> absolutely, uh, but, but, but true. Yes, and true for everyone, regardless of their right. circumstance and, or what happens in their lives. Right, and I guess lastly, just to be open-minded about the possibilities for, uh, other people, you know, because uh, a big part of what uh, I deal with in the piece is about other people's reactions to what happened to me, mm -hmm. and uh, again, those lowered expectations, and, and it's uh, for me, it, it's it's really important that 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 um, that um, you know, people uh, newly disabled pe people in particular aren't. Aren't uh, you know like straightjacketed and and to to these these preconceived uh, uh, ideas of what they're capable of or how they should behave, mm -hmm. you know, or how soon they 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 can engage in in you know in, in restructuring their lives. Yeah, but I I have to imagine that for you I mean this is it's almost thirty years or just over thirty years. Right after. Um, you you were shot. You must have gone through a period of of anger and depression, depression, and mm -hmm. all the feelings that are so normal when when huge changes and and or uh, ha other things happen in in li in your life. I, I imagine that a lot of people, especially newly blinded or persons who um, who are sort of early on in the in the process of of. Yeah, it's uh well, it's it's you know as I tell the story within uh, as I tell the story of of dealing with the loss of my sight, it's it's within uh, an eight month period, the stretch from the night I got shot to the night to to um, moving out on my own eight months later. Uh, 
as a short time mm-hmm. uh, by by most you know most uh, professional psychologists and rehab people's uh, expectations because I didn't do that I didn't have the same um, sort of um, uh, process I didn't fit that 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 uh, that uh, that profile right. even though I, I was you know the rehab people I came in contact with a great many of them tried to force me into that hmm. uh, but but my my response was you know was because of the life that I come up from you know the hard times I'd faced and the things I'd lost and learned to deal with coming up in South Central Los Angeles you know uh, as a child of a, a single mother nine nine of us kids and poverty and foster care and all those sorts of things I uh, uh, for me blindness losing my sight wasn't you know, it wasn't such a tragic deal. I was uh, actually had contemplated the possibility that it might happen. Really? And I take the audience through all of that to to um, to sort and and bring out come out the other end to to show why I I was so different. You know, in my response to that, and uh, and I'm I'm I've come to find that I'm not the only person. Uh, that that responded like that it's uh some some of us really need uh and want to get on with our lives mm-hmm. you know because uh you know it's like that spilt milk syndrome is not for us right and um and and we don't you know for me i you know as a somewhat a, as a as an existentialist, I uh, I think it's, uh, it's it's uh, it's left to me to determine what you know what 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 the game's going to be ultimately for me. And um, well, and the game has been one of utter strength. I mean, I also considering you be, went on to become a world class competitive judo athlete, and right. you've had so many other achievements and accomplishments since. That right. day, I, it's inspiring. Well, yeah, it, it's uh, it's you know I it's what it's it's uh, nothing nothing you know I I'd rather be doing than not. Mm-hmm. And um, um, whatever I I set set my uh, you know my my aim at I I mean to do it well. So uh, yeah, I I uh, I got into. Uh, Prior to getting into to playwriting, I, I I got very deep into uh, competitive uh, judo here in the states. I did a um, uh, was on the, the the college team and all that for a couple of years, and that was uh, you know the, that was the only blind com- com- competitor competitor there and mm-hmm. on the circuit as well. Uh, so I yeah, so when blind judo was Included in the Paralympic Games in uh, in Seoul in 1988, uh, it was just natural that I, I get into it. I had uh, almost uh, retired from from serious competition by that time, uh, but once that that happened, I, I I got back into it and eventually went to uh, two Paralympics and got a silver medal in in Barcelona. 
won the World Championship at the Victory Games in Holland in 1990 and the World Cup in Sassari, Sardinia in 1991. Uh, I retired from competition in 1998. I um, am approaching 40. I guess I was already 40, actually. Uh, Over 40. It was... um, it was, it, you know, it's too much hard work for too little gain. Well, sure. And those young, those young, uh, young, uh, young studs out there from around <laughs> the world were uh, moving a bit too fast for me. Well. So it's, uh, yeah. But but it's it's a great sport and it's uh, perfect for uh, for uh, blind competitors, male and female, uh-huh. and uh, and I think it's the most uh, exciting. Uh, judo there is uh, because blind blind players uh, do battle they don't yeah. they don't play the sidelines or you know play mm-hmm. peekaboo and stuff they right. just grab and go mm-hmm. does it do, do you think that now, what I meant to say before I started that clip was that Waits, the story, uh, Lynn Manning's story, is a story is the story of how Manning's own life was changed forever when a bullet was shot in a crowded Los Angeles bar, and it robbed him of his sight. And uh, Waits sh- is how Manning shares his powerful story in a riveting one-man show. So Lynn Manning is an award-winning poet a playwright, an actor, and a former blind judo champion of the world. He accomplished all of this after he was shot and blinded in a bar fight at the age of 23. And Lynn Manning and Waits are playing this Sunday, that's February 15th, at 8 p.m. at the TELUS Studio Theater, and tickets are available through the Chan Center box office. Get them while you can. All right. Um, so on Monday night, turning to opera and theater, on Monday night, Zachary Rothman went to a performance of The Emperor of Atlantis. This dark comic opera was written in 1942 by Victor Ullman inside of a Jewish ghetto. The piece survived its creator, who was murdered at Auschwitz, and is performed by City Opera in Vancouver. Zach brought back this report to share with the Arts Report. Hello, hello. Armed hordes, planes, and underground torpedoes have obliterated the defenses of a third city. The citizens are dead. Their corpses have been assigned standard procedural disposition. Good evening. I'm Zachary Rothman, here for CITR, and this week I had the pleasure of seeing The Emperor of Atlantis, performed by City Opera Vancouver, written by Victor Ullman in a Jewish ghetto in 1942. Ullman and his librettist, Frantisek Peter Kien, were deported to Auschwitz, where they died two years later. This opera sat unknown and forgotten in a leather suitcase under a bed for over 30 years, where thankfully for the rest of us, it was finally discovered. This is the first time the piece has been performed in Vancouver, and this week it was performed on the stage at the Norman Rothstein Theatre. Peter Jorgensen was the stage director, Charles Barber, music director, Andrew Greenwood, John Minagro, Megan Morrison, and others perform it. The Emperor of Atlantis is opera at its most accomplished and its most political. It is the most dangerous and important kind of theater, and it's really something to see. The music is modern 
and terrifying. The text, both coldly comic and sharp as a satire should be. The story is simple. The tale begins in the midst of a long and violent war. The angel of death, weary and enfeebled, decides to go on strike. In creating the Emperor of Atlantis, Ullman and Kien could not have risked more. It is a biting and raw satire created in an age of totalitarianism. The creators openly mock the equally ridiculous but horrifying and popular ideals of the Third Reich. And the opera creates a state of perfect satire, a war to end wars, and an empire where soldiers can no longer die, and where the ultimate threat to the state is the disappearance of death itself. The Emperor of Atlantis plays just one more time, tonight, Wednesday, February 11th, Norman Rothstein Theatre, 8pm. For CITR, I'm Zachary Rothman. Good night. And as Zach said, tonight is the last performance of The Emperor of Atlantis, and tickets are still available. Um, if you like opera, political art, or both, you'll really enjoy this lost and found masterpiece. Thanks again so much to Zachary Rothman for that wonderful review. And now for something completely different. The Vancouver Art Gallery has a new show on. It's called How Soon Is Now, and it opened last Friday, February 6, 2009. The exhibition brings together an eclectic group of 34 contemporary artists, all of whom hail from around BC. The Arts Report's arts critic Amy Zion attended the gallery's media preview last Thursday, and I reached her on the phone earlier today to discuss the new show. So Amy, you attended the media preview at the Vancouver Art Gallery last Thursday. When you walked in, what were your expectations of the new show? Uh, I actually was kind of uh, interested in finding out who was actually in the show because they hadn't released a list of the artists' names, I don't think, until um, very close to the opening. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kathleen Ritter, who is the curator, visited about 120 studios. And so, of course, when you visit 120 people in a small arts community, you kind of start to hear a bit of buzz about uh, who had been seen. And um, I think a lot of people were curious to see who had been selected. Uh, of the 34 of the 120. Was there anyone specific that you were looking, you were hoping was included or were looking out for? Um, no, I kind of had a good idea of who might be in it, but there were some, some surprises about who was, um, who was included. Um, but it, yeah, no, it was, it was quite uh, spectacular from the get-go. Mm -hmm. As soon as you walk up the stairs, there's quite, quite a few large pieces, like uh, Christy Malakoff's um, skeleton on the on the wall when you walk in, mm -hmm. made of um, I don't know hundreds and hundreds of cut flowers. Right, mm -hmm. and it's the it, it sort of looks like the skull of a skeleton. Am I right? Yeah, sorry, a skeleton skull. Right, and uh, there's a lot of other very large pieces um, associated with the with this exhibition. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the highlights that you saw? Um. Since it was such a spectacular show, there was a lot of work that was kind of competing for your attention that was very flashy and very um, distracting in a way. So I was kind of more interested in uh, some of the more subtle works that were included. So those were things like uh, 
Christian Kliegel did what was called an architectural intervention, which I think people aren't quite familiar with, but it's just when you uh, look at the space that your art is supposed to be shown in and actually try to intervene in the space itself instead of actually producing work for the specific space. So in his case, he um, had created these fake elevator doors, Mm -hmm. and there are about four of them around the show uh, that he installed in the wall. So he was thinking of um, making work that was simultaneously painting and sculpture and non-object, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, because especially in, when a show that is that um, big and that exciting, it's kind of nice to have those uh, contemplative exits at all turns. <laughs> escape routes? <laughs> escape routes, exactly. Fake escape routes. And they're, I think they're pretty convincing, too, which is kind of the humor of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewan also, I don't know if they were up for the media preview, so I haven't seen them, but she did her pieces um, in the bathroom stalls. So she did small drawings on uh, in the stalls themselves. So that was sort of something that was um, might be construed as uh, just a random person drawing in the vague squash, and probably not, but mm-hmm. at least it was more of a quiet um, space to view the work instead of a large exhibition that was actually... Um, parts of it were quite loud, also. Right. You one bef- before we start talking about the loud pieces, you did also mention there was one window installed. Yeah. Um. The artist Abbas Akavan um, put a window in one of the rooms, looking out onto the. Um, I think it's the Hornby entrance. Mm-hmm. I'm not good with those streets. Across uh-huh. from Cafe Artigiano. Okay. And uh, he installed speakers in the trees, to. Um, basically project the sounds of an invasive species of birds. Mm-hmm. Um, so the window, he was thinking of it as sort of um, thinking in the tradition of painting, which historically was seen as a window onto the world. Right. He decided instead he'd just sort of slice out a window um, and then do a sound piece mm-hmm. where people sort of could maybe mistake these sounds of birds. It's just sort of like a nice, pleasant um, sound to accompany maybe a coffee on on the cafe deck or something like that, but right. they're actually um, kind of a dominant colonial a species of bird. Yeah, pests. They are. Yeah, they're pest birds, basically. Is this? Will that piece be permanent then? If if he's punched a, wool, a hole in the gallery's wall, I imagine that. No, I think what happens. I'm not sure actually. I think the window is usually there, but it's covered up within the gallery, mm-hmm. so they sort of more just unveil the window. I'm not sure that he punched it through uh-huh. yeah. the cement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be a little ambitious. Let's talk now about how loud this exhibition is. The exhibition is called How Soon Is Now, which is based on the Smith's very notorious song. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really does, as you mentioned, spectacular. it's a spectacular show, but it, a lot of stuff seems very spectacle-like and very rock and roll when mm-hmm. you read through the the media preview and the uh, press release, it's all about almost, um, it seems very like a superficial grab at attention and bringing, definitely I encourage drawing attention, the viewers' attention to Vancouver artists, but when we were speaking about this before, it does sort of seem, there is no curatorial um, through line for the the show, so mm-hmm. in some well, ways... Yeah, no, the, my, my big problem I realize is that what the show does, which is really nice, is shows that uh, Vancouver has a very vivacious, very alive and active art community. But I don't think it's the role of a public gallery to just do that, to just mm-hmm. show work, and that 
and that um, artists are existing and existing in an interesting way, but to actually um, maybe have a curatorial theme that showed some social issues or um, even some artistic issues that uh, a lot of artists were working around instead of trying to produce a diverse survey of works. Right. So the way that it was curated, it sort of... Um, made one piece talk with the piece beside it. So it almost created a sense of internal logic within the show. So, you know, one piece referenced craft and minimalism next to another piece. It also maybe did the same thing, which led into something else that related to something else in that piece. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was sort of like, oh, yeah, no, this makes sense with this and that. And you walk through and it kind of, you understand what kind of tour you're on. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it um, it sort of, provides a false idea that we're getting a full survey of Vancouver art because, you know, as the curator said, 120 studio visits, they all were only able to show a quarter of that, understandably. Right. Um, so, but, you know, knowing that at the get-go, it might have been a bit nicer to actually pick maybe a theme related to BC itself mm -hmm. that a lot of artists are working with, such as maybe even gentrification, since it affects um, artists' ability to live in BC, mm -hmm. also, and where they live in BC. Hmm. So, um, this Friday, um, mm -hmm. there's the Philip Review is hosting a, a yes. review. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that that sounds like a very interesting talkback and a good uh, forum for people who are interested, who are going to see the show, to yeah. sort of get a little get in on the conversation and perhaps have a better context of what they're walking into when they visit. How soon is now? Yeah, it's actually a really exciting event. It's the second of the Philip Review panels that are hosted by a local um, curator who's actually from Sweden named Johan Lund. Mm -hmm. And he invites um, people from inside and outside Vancouver to talk about shows going on, um, just contemporary art shows. So for this one, he's invited Julian Myers, who is um, an art historian who teaches at CCA in San Francisco, mm -hmm. to come and talk about... Um, I, I believe a show or post minimal sculpture, post conceptual sculpture, um, but also Sadira Rodriguez, who used to be an employee at the VAG, who now um, is an educator and runs the continuing education program at Emily Carr. Mm -hmm. um, and she's a curator and she's going to basically do a critical review of the show um, in the Philip office. And so that's on Friday at 7 p.m. at uh, 3.05 Canby. And if you go to the Philip web, uh, website, you can get more information. But um, I think that she's going to do quite a thorough review of not just this show in general, but um, this show as a series of shows that seem to spring up every once in a while in the city mm -hmm. that try and um, give the public a sense of, of what contemporary art in Vancouver looks like. But at the same time, they sort of a lot of other things coincide with that, such as, you know, a lot of artists are left out. Mm -hmm. A lot of artists that are not usually seen together or shown together and produce um, sometimes interesting, sometimes more conflicting mm -hmm. meanings. Right. But sometimes that conflict can bring about really interesting troubles that make people question and engage with the art a lot more. Yeah, it's true. And apparently, I wasn't able to make it to the opening, but apparently it was a very, you know, a huge, well-attended event. Mm -hmm. Which is nice. It's nice to see people um, taking an interest in BC art. It's just, I think it's unfortunate that um, there wasn't maybe a more cohesive theme. Because some of the things, even in press release, um, were interesting statements, but they didn't seem to apply to all of the work. Maybe a couple pieces. Mm -hmm. 
people will have to head to the gallery themselves to figure it out. And we'll be broadcasting live from Fuse later on in February. That's February 27th. So maybe people can come down and uh, visit the table at Fuse, and perhaps you will even be there, and so people can have a chat with you and interact with the artwork, interact with the Vancouver Art Gallery, and, uh, and give their own perspective. Definitely. It's definitely a, a show to go see. There's a lot of interesting work, and a lot of very interesting artists are included in it. Great. Well, as always, thank you again, Amy. And, uh, we'll Thanks for having me, Tracy. No problem. We'll hear back from you soon. Sounds great. Amy Zion is the online editor for the Philip Review, which is a publication of art, culture, and ideas released three times a year by the Project Tile Publishing Society out of Vancouver, British Columbia. I reached Amy at her home in Vancouver earlier today, and I thank her very much. All right, and uh, turning again to something completely different, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, which is great if you have a partner to celebrate with. But if you're single on Valentine's Day, it can be one of the most dreaded days of the year. Yes, uh, and what is a single person to do these days? Life is busy, it's hard to meet new people, and finding someone quote-unquote special at the bar is not really a possibility, at least in my opinion. So that's where 25dates.com comes in handy. The Canadian company started in 2002 in Toronto, and it now hosts singles events in cities across the country. This February, there will be two events happening in Vancouver, so I called up the Vancouver event coordinator for 25dates.com to find out a little bit more about this service. And here is our interview at a cafe in Vancouver earlier this week. So I'm Michael Reed. I'm an event coordinator with 25dates.com. Why speed dating? What's the allure of speed dating for people these days? Speed dating gives people an opportunity to date outside of their regular social circle. You go out to a venue and meet people that you wouldn't normally meet either through work or through your friends because they are, like you, signing up to an, another service. Mm -hmm. It's a way to get out of the bar scene and meet people that are actually looking for a relationship. Right. And how did 25dates.com get started way back in 2002? It was started by a couple of attractive, single, hard-working professional women who heard of the concept from LA, thought it was a great thing to bring up to the Toronto area, and took it from there and ran with it. They did such a great job bringing it out and bringing it into Canada. It's uh, just incredible. And for people who've never done it before, who are wondering about it, can you break it down? What does it look like when you walk into a 25dates.com event? Where are you going and what are you doing? Basically, you're walking into a bar or a restaurant. Um, you won't necessarily see right away what's going on. You might see letters on tables, but that might not mean anything to you. You're going to see a bunch of people kind of standing around, waiting for things to begin, and a couple of people in t-shirts that say 25days.com. What happens over the course of the evening is the women sit down at tables and the men move from table to table throughout the night, roughly every three minutes. That way everybody gets to meet everybody, everybody has a fair chance. Fair enough. And what kind of people attend these events? Everyone attends. It's, um, it's a really diverse group of people that we get out, both culturally as well as professionally. We get everyone from every walk of life coming out to these events. It's really quite a mixed bag. And have you got any success stories? Maybe 
specific success stories that you can share with us? We have a couple. Um, the one, of course, that we're most proud of is our president of the company met her husband through an event. <laughs> they were hosting an event, and they had that evening some women who didn't show up. So as she was talking to one of the guys who was, for those three minutes, dateless, uh, the connection was made. Uh, we do have a pretty strong policy about not dating our own clientele, <laughs> but we also understand that love is for everyone, and when it happens, it happens. Uh, that was over four years ago. They're now happily married uh, with a newborn baby at home. That's amazing. That's probably the best success story I could imagine. That's You can't ask for better than that when it happens to one of your own. And, um... What is your goal as the event coordinator? What is it that you hope to, that people get out of the night or even yourself? I go and have a good time. I, that's number one for me. My current co-host, Melissa, her and I have this dynamic and it suits us really well. A lot of people think we're a married couple. We, we just have that dynamic where we tease each other publicly. Mm -hmm. um, so I go and have fun with it. What I hope everyone else gets out of it is that they've had a good evening, they've got They've gone out, maybe met some new people and made that connection, but at the very least, they've gone out and had a good time. Right. But in, in the connection, you're not, people don't have to divulge their entire private lives and or give away their phone numbers, etc. Can you talk a little bit about the, the boundaries that are still in place? One of, the, one of the things that I liked about 25 Dates when I first heard about it, and keeping in mind, when I first signed up, I was a client, not working with them was that there was no face-to-face -face rejection. You didn't have to tell someone no or hear no to your face. You weren't giving out a phone number or anything extremely intimate in that way. You're, giving, you're agreeing to exchange an email address if both parties are interested. Whether it's the email address you've had since you first went online or whether it's a, a, a temporary account that you've set up just for that purpose, it's only an email address. And that kind of gives people that little bit of safety, that, that barrier almost where they can feel comfortable because they know it's not anything that can be traced back to them or get creepy down the road. Right. So you mentioned your own beginnings with 25date.com. You are a client. Can you tell us your own story? I, I'm not just the president. I'm also a client. <laughs> no. Um, I heard about them uh, through posters when I was living in Toronto. I was single at the time and uh, decided to sign up. I found out recently that I was actually at uh, one of the earlier events in the company's history. And, yeah, I went down. Um, I'm just trying to think of, of what I was feeling. I was very nervous that event. It was, uh, it was kind of weird and scary, and so I can appreciate what people feel when they walk in the door. But the, uh, the president and vice president of the company made me feel very welcome, and they chatted with everyone, made us all feel relaxed. And, unfortunately, I found out about two days beforehand that I was moving to Calgary for three months shortly after the event. Hmm. So Not I did, conducive to uh, starting a relationship. No, but it was. Uh, it took a lot of pressure off me because then I wasn't looking for a relationship. I was looking for friends, and uh, so I went in with that mentality to it, and came out of it with I think five or six matches, hmm. um, which I thought was fantastic. I was uh, I was very happy with that. Went off, did my little stint in Calgary for three months, came back, and uh, got back in touch with the company and asked them if they were looking to hire. And uh, to make a long story short, I've been with them ever since. Fantastic. So I think that that feeling of nervousness the first time around and, and uncertainty is probably very common amongst your clientele. What, what suggestions or tips would you give to someone who's just going out to their very first 25dates.com? First and foremost, you got to be comfortable. And if that means you're wearing jeans and your favorite top, that's what you should be wearing. Um, that 
goes a long way to making people feel comfortable if they're actually dressed comfortably. Uh, when you get out there, come out a little bit early so you don't feel rushed when you walk in the door. So you can look around, relax, maybe meet a few participants as you order a drink from the bar beforehand. Uh, we generally try to provide some sort of food as well before the event so there's something to munch on and, and you'll get a chance to sort of interact a little bit with people before you actually meet them. That's the best thing. And if you're still feeling nervous when you get there, come talk to one of the hosts because we're always looking for someone to, to talk to. Fair enough. So I guess my last question will be parting advice. How can... Mm, my last question... I don't know. Did you want somebody in there all in tow? No. <laughs> now, do you think that that's a ploy? Was this like something to get at his sensitive side or... Funny stories or were you going to skip mm, that? I guess, oh yeah. So you're mo so you got to share with me what's the most memorable night you've had at 25date.com. Well, there's a few things that come to mind. I mean, there's the uh, the story that I've heard of. I wasn't there for it about uh, one fellow that showed up with a stuffed animal and went to every date with a stuffed animal in tow. Now, <laughs> now, do you think that that's a ploy? Was this like something to get at his sensitive side or? I really don't know. I would think it would have to be because I'm not sure that using it for anything other than sort of a gimmick would be conducive to forming that relationship bond that, you, that you'd be looking for. Right. But I wasn't there. I didn't get a chance to ask him, so I don't really know. Do you think it could be like a conversation starter? I mean, I imagine that it's difficult for some people on first, in, first encounter when you only have three minutes to really get the conversation started. Certainly, certainly it could be used for that, but there's, it's easy to start a conversation at these events because you all have one thing in common at the very least. You had the nerve to sign up for it. You had a common goal that you were looking for. So that's always a good starting place if you're looking for a conversation starter anyway. Fair enough. Okay, any other really memorable nights for you? Uh, well, there was the, uh, the one client in Toronto who was uh, very enamored with me. Uh, she went to several events and spent most of the time talking to me. Uh, I would say more than she did with anyone else. Uh, she bought me birthday cards. And when she found out I was moving to Vancouver, she was very upset with me. Oh. Um, it was it was very sad to have to say goodbye to her, but I, you know, had a job to do and, a, and I had my own life to live. And mm. we never did date. Uh, unfortunately, mm. that wasn't the cards for us. But it was uh, it was a source of um, of entertainment for the rest of my coworkers. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Do you get hit on a lot at these events? No, it's, it's very rare, which is actually okay for me. I'm very comfortable with that. I'm in a great relationship right now and not looking, so. That probably just comes through when I'm hosting anyway. Fair enough. Michael Reed has been hosting events for 25dates.com since 2003, and I caught up with him earlier this week in a Vancouver cafe. There are two 25dates.com speed dating events in Vancouver this month. One is for men 35 to 45 and women 30 to 40 at room 18 in Kitsilano on February 18th. The other is for men and women aged 25 to 35 at the East End at the End Cafe on Commercial Drive on February 25th. To sign up or find out more about speed dating, visit the 25dates.com website at 25dates.com. All right, and sticking with this Valentine's Day theme, chocolate is another essential part of this holiday season. And on West 10th Avenue, right at Alma, a new chocolate shop called Coco Nymph opened just earlier this year. Rachel Swatsky is the owner, and I called up I called her up earlier today to find out exactly just how one gets into the chocolate business and what's it all about. Here is our conversation. 
nymph appeared on West 10th not that long ago. What inspired you to open the store, and, uh, and how did you get into the world of chocolate? Well, I started making chocolates um, for gifts one year for Christmas uh, for friends. Just I had bought a Bon Appetit magazine, and they had a make-your-own-gifts section. And I've always been a baker and interested in food, and so this really appealed to me. So I tried it, and it had rave reviews. My friends all said, oh, you should, you should sell these. You should do something with this. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're crazy, because I would never be a businesswoman. That's not my style at all. And then... Um, and then the next year at Christmas, I was really, really broke, and I was in school, and I had no, I was doing my second undergrad degree, mm-hmm. which means that I had no opportunity for student loans, and mm-hmm. I had just kind of changed courses, and I was, you know, working hard and working full-time nights at a group home for adults with disabilities, and mm-hmm. then working, going to school during the day. And I calculated in November what I would have left to get through December if I paid my tuition in January, and it was something like 100 bucks. Oh my gosh. So not even enough to buy groceries or anything. And so I was like, well, I have to do something about this, and I have no availability, so I'm just going to um, try making chocolate. And so I took my money, and I bought a big bag of good Belgian chocolate. And I was living in Winnipeg at the time, and there was no good chocolate makers there. There was no one making chocolate from scratch. Everything was brought in from other places. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was a hit. And so instead of making and selling about 300 pieces, which was my original intention, I made and sold 3,000. Wow. And so I was hooked. I was like, this is the most fun thing I've ever done, mm-hmm. first of all. And secondly, um, like, it worked. And thirdly, I mm-hmm. don't know enough about this. I, I used the same recipe for dark chocolates, milk chocolates, and white chocolates, and that's a di- recipe for disaster more than anything because <laughs> uh, there are three completely different substances. Right. And so I decided to take some courses. Mm-hmm. And then to make a really long story a bit shorter, I ended up moving to Vancouver to work in the industry because I wanted more experience, and there were chocolatiers here doing what I wanted to do. And I got a job here at a competitor that will remain nameless. Right. <laughs> um, but they were a very bad working environment. And I think that there's a certain level of respect that every human deserves. And I wasn't even getting that there. Hmm. So I quit. But what it taught me was that it was okay to open my own shop because it would be a valuable contribution to society to give people a good place to work and a good place to meet and be social. And so my place is that. So... That's the inspiration, I guess, was, you know, wanting to do a thing that I loved, not wanting to do it selfishly, and wanting to impact people's lives, which is why my kitchen is in my neighborhood. I don't have a separate kitchen from my store right? so that I can connect with my neighbors. And mm-hmm. and, and people can just walk in, meet you, and... and taste your delicious chocolates what you said your first that first batch of 3000 what kind of chocolates were you making I made really simple things Um, my first truffle that I ever made which was out of Bon Appetit magazine was actually a version of one of the things I sell now which was a caramel with sea salt Mm -hmm. chocolate and I kept that one through the whole process I've been making it for six years I still make it it's not the same as it mm-hmm. was back then. I'm not stealing Bon Appetit. <laughs> um, right. I started with that, but I, over the years, changed it to be something that's way more my own. Mm-hmm. And then um, the I got a big client that first year, and he wanted 
something dark, something milk, and something white. And so I did a dark with sea salt, and I did a milk with coffee, mm. and a white with vanilla. So very simple, very classic. They were really different look from what I do now. Uh, right now, all my truffles are square. They're like little one-inch canvases that I get to be an artist on. Right. And those were all like really traditional round things, and it was kind of a gong show. They were all like individually wrapped, and I couldn't find packaging. <laughs> I put them in little bags from the dollar store mm-hmm. and things like that. They were not at all what I do now, but they were a great start. So. But now, I mean, if you look at your website, which is www.coconymph.com, you've got amazing different flavored and uh, types of of, um, of truffles. You've got one, Lucy and the Chai, uh, the Liz. How, how have your, obviously you've expanded and you've started to make really specific and really interesting uh, types of chocolate. What, what's inspired you to, to sort of branch out and make these really unique Truffles. Um, well, I've had, um, I mean, obviously you need to have a line of things that will appeal to a, a broad audience. And so, you know, there's a few basic categories, like you want something fruity and something nutty and something a bit more savory. And so I've kind of, within those categories, kind of gone, you know, what can I do here and how, what appeals to me the most, what I think people will like. And I've been, um, you know, essentially training and learning and practicing for six years now. And so during that time, I've had the opportunity to work at three different chocolatiers. I went and interned in the U.S. at a couple of places. Mm-hmm. And then I took some courses in Quebec. And um, even in every course that I took, there was anywhere from 12 to 25 recipes that wow. we did. So I had an opportunity to try making so many different things and getting to figure out um yeah, like what I liked and what I thought other people would like. And this whole thing is basically an experiment in believing that other people will like to taste things the same way that I do. Mm. <laughs> and so far, has the experiment worked? It's working. Oh, <laughs> yes, it is working. So. What's, what would you say, if you had to choose one of the many, many chocolates that you make nowadays, what's, what's right now your piece de resistance? Well, can I give you two answers? Yes, of course. Okay, so in my regular collection, I have the Isla truffle, which is the one with the sea salt and the caramel that Mm -hmm. I've been making the longest, so I feel like I've really perfected it. And it takes everything that's good about chocolate and just enhances it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I love it. And I think that after so many years of making it, it's perfect, and I really like it. And... It's actually named after the lady that let me use her kitchen my first two years of chocolate making. Oh, so, wonderful. I lived in a tiny little apartment, and <laughs> she let me use her kitchen in her nice, beautiful home. A tribute chocolate. Yeah, and so she's the mother of a friend of mine, and she helped me get my start. And so it's named after her. And then the other one is in my seasonal collection. And it, for me, eating it is my favorite one to eat that I make, and I look forward to it all year long. Um, and it's the cinnamon truffle. It's called Desire. Desire. All, all of my uh, Valentine's truffles have fun little Valentine names. Mm-hmm. And so it's Desire, and it's uh, milk chocolate and cinnamon whipped filling Ooh. in a dark chocolate shell with a hand-painted red heart on the top. And so it's um, beautiful, and it tastes lovely, and it's quite a lot different from the rest of my pieces and there's something about it that for me is just like my absolute favorite 
Now, of course, I have to ask the question. It is getting running up to Valentine's Day. You do have a table right here in the sub at UBC. You're selling chocolates this week at the sub's Valentine Fair. Mm -hmm. But what is it about chocolate and Valentine's Day? Why are the two, why does love immediately factor into chocolate? Why are they related, in, do you think? Well, I think when, you know, Hallmark manufactured the holiday, <laughs> they probably manufactured some chocolates right along with it. Um, but they've always been a symbol of love because they've long, for thousands of years actually, uh, been believed to be an aphrodisiac. Right. So Montezuma uh, was one of the first people to regularly indulge in chocolate drinks. And he was known to drink, I think it was something like up to 200 cups a day, of ground cocoa beans in hot water with cinnamon and spices. Wow. And because he had a massive harem that he had to service. <laughs> so, um, he had to keep himself um, pepped up. <laughs> yeah, so the history of chocolate is just kind of fraught with these kinds of stories. Um, Columbus brought was the first to bring the cocoa beans. No, I'm sorry that I have to... Uh, to fade Rachel's story of chocolate and Columbus and the history of love and why we love chocolate. But, uh, of course, I'm over time, as per usual. So I'm going to say goodbye, run out of here, um, have a great week. I am not in next week, but uh, there will be an arts report, and I hope you have a fantastic week yourselves. Um, this has been another edition of the Arts Report, and if you want to get in touch with me, drop me a line or give me any tips about arts in Vancouver, you can reach me at arts, A-R-T-S, at citr.ca. My name is Tracy Fuller. This is CITR 101.9 FM. Thanks for listening.